Filthy Henry and the Impossible Victim, Chapter 6. In the world of law enforcement, evidence can be broken down into a few categories. Generally speaking, members of the police force, no matter what country they protect and serve in, like to find plain, simple, caught red-handed evidence. This type makes their job so much easier. There's no need to waste time investigating somebody when you have pictures from their online social network profile showing them shooting the victim. That makes everything nice and easy, from a conviction point of view, that is. Sadly, such evidence is so rare, you would have more luck finding Elvis astride a blue unicorn drinking whiskey from a glass slipper. The bookmakers would give great odds on such a sighting as well. Then there is circumstantial evidence, which is nine times out of ten the worst kind of evidence. As the name suggests, this is a form of clue that will only really work if a number of circumstances are met. Otherwise a first-year law student could get it dismissed in court, while still hung over. Mostly police types will use this form of evidence as a Hail Mary play, but only on a crook that they know is missing most of his cognitive abilities. It is easy to trick somebody into confessing their crimes if they're just the right sort of dumb to think that you have better evidence than you really do. Another type of evidence that they teach recruits about is planted evidence. This is something that both sides of the law know about, and both sides of the law can use if they see fit. Crooks usually do it to frame somebody else, deflecting some of the heat, as they say in the street, from themselves, although where exactly the street is has never been firmly established. Corrupt members of the police force use planted evidence in a similar fashion. If they've taken a dislike to somebody in particular, they will stitch them up so that a crime can be laid firmly at the unfortunate soul's feet. It greatly reduces the amount of time it usually takes to solve a case, mainly because you don't have to do any work beyond planting the evidence. After that, your report just has to be a short story that reinforces the facts you're making up on the spot. In no uncertain terms, planted evidence when used by a policeman, is a big no-no. This gets taught to all the new recruits on the first day of training. To be good police, you find the bad guy using the right procedures. Trent O'Shea had paid attention during the evidence class, noting down everything that was said. On his written exams in the training college, he had passed the section on planted evidence with flying colours. Now, as he stood in the paint aisle of a hardware store, everything his lecturer had said came back to him information that Trent was choosing to ignore. To avoid being inserted into the foundation of his house for all time, Trent O'Shea was willing to do anything. This included the creation of some planted evidence. It just required a little arts and crafts work, a pot of paint, because the victim had that strange coloured blood, and a large knife. Then simply covered the blade with some paint, and Robert's your father's brother, planted evidence. Even if it was evidence that bordered on the outright insane. After all, orange blood? Since when was that a thing? Trent stared at the rows of paint tins, reading the labels. A pimple-faced youth approached him, wearing a bright green apron, which bore a name tag informing the world that he was called Tim. Hello, sir, he said. Can I help you in any way? Trent slowly nodded his head and exhaled through his nose. Yes, I'm looking for a blood-orange colour, he said. Also, do you stock large knives? As prison cells went, 
Shelley had to admit this was one of the nicest ones she had ever seen. There were no windows in any of the walls, yet the room itself was brightly lit from some unseen source. Piles of books, novels judging by the titles and covers of them, were stacked just inside the archway. A large, comfortable-looking sofa was pushed up against one wall. In the centre of the cell was a wooden round table with four ornate chairs, one of which was occupied by an elderly gentleman in a white robe that matched those worn by Ogman Dagda. He sat with his head rested in his hands, stooped over a little. At the sound of Shelley's footsteps, he looked up. Well, you might as well come in and have a sit, the gentleman said, gesturing towards one of the empty chairs. He rubbed his eyes quickly. I'm Diane Kecht, the god of healing. Shelley smiled and suppressed his strange desire to curtsy. Being mortal, you rarely thought about meeting beings with magical powers, let alone gods. Now in the past day, she had met three. True, you would have to classify them as false gods, if she was acting like the good Catholic girl her mother had tried to bring her up as. But still, you cannot say false god without somehow acknowledging the god part of the equation. Three gods, none of whom were anything like she expected a god to be. As she fully entered the room, there was a rustle of paper from behind, and the blocks started to reappear in the same page-peeling manner they had left. Diane Keck grinned, the saddest grin that Shelley had ever seen. You know, the worst part about being a god is we all like our magic to have a certain look and feel to it, he said. If there's some way to use words or books in his effects, Ogma will do it. Truth be told, it would be easier and quicker for him just to make the blocks vanish or suddenly appear. I was only just thinking the same thing outside your room. I'm Shelley, Shelley said, as she sat down opposite the healing god. Wiping his right hand roughly on his robe, Diane Kecht offered it to her. Shelley smiled and took his hand. A pleasure to meet you, my dear, he said. Sorry, I usually use my magic to keep my hands extremely clean, but alas, a quick robe scrub is the best I can manage at the minute. No need to beat around the bush on this. I know why you've come. Only too well. Sitting closer to Diane Kecht, Shelley could see that his cheeks were wet, his eyes puffy and red. Have you been crying? He nodded once. But you're a god. Do gods cry? Would you not cry if your only child had been killed? Shelley felt her face flush a little red. It was a fair question. Oh, definitely. I'd also cry if I'd been the one who killed him. Do you think I care what others believe? I loved my son. He was an extremely rare gift for a god to have. I was so proud of him. It's a terrible thing for a parent to outlive their child, particularly when both are immortal beings. I only want to find out what happened. I don't care about my own welfare. If my removal from all the realms could somehow bring him back, I would already be asking Dagda to do it. He's a father. He'd understand why I would sacrifice myself for my son. A lump formed in Shelley's throat, and she felt her own eyes begin to water. This was not a god sitting before her. Rather, it was a grieving parent, somebody who had lost something that could never be replaced. She reached out and cupped his right hand in both of her own. I promise we will solve this case for you, she said, looking Diane Keck directly in the eye. The god managed half a smile. I just want you to find out who and why, he said. I don't care as long as Mia gets justice. Settling back in her seat, Shelley pulled out her notepad from her jacket pocket and flipped it open. 
If you don't mind, I just have a few questions to ask. Where were you at the time it happened? Dian Kecht slouched back in his seat and wiped away the tears from his eyes with the back of his hand. Well, despite what most people think, the old Celtic gods still have worshippers around the world. People that feed us belief and call on us for help. Men and women around the country that do faith healing on people's backs, for example, would seek my aid. Sometimes, if Dagda allows it, we can appear in person to these people. So you were in my realm at the time of the murder? I was, the healing god said. A lovely man in Donegal who helps folks with arthritis. He called on my aid, sadly for something that I could not help him with. Dagda allowed me to visit the man, and it was something of a rare case. I arrived at his home and had some tea with him. Dian Kecht began to sob uncontrollably then. I was having tea when Miak was killed. Shelley stopped writing in her pad and got up from the table. Walking around to stand behind the god, she gingerly reached out and placed her hands on his shoulders. Words failed her, so she relied on an old memory of what her mother used to say to calm her down when she cried as a child. There, 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 she said in a low and soothing tone. I know this is hard, but is there any reason why somebody would have wanted him dead? Dian Kecht visibly shook as he suppressed another sob. None at all. He was a healing god as well. One that the younger druids had favoured over me. He was even able to heal some things that I never could. Just had a better understanding of the body, I guess. He healed an injury from the War of the Gods that I was never able to figure out, despite all my power. I was so proud of him, as any father would be. How could someone who brings so much good into the world have enemies, let alone ones that would want to get rid of him? The healing god reached up and placed his right hand on top of Shelley's. You don't understand. While it isn't unheard of for gods to father offspring, it is rare that we have a child who is also a god. He was the very definition of what mortals call a miracle. He was my son and I loved him. With that, Dian Kecht buried his face in his hands and cried once more. There was no way anyone would believe it. Not a single person. But when your options are limited, you use those options to the best advantage possible. Trent stood at the sink in his kitchen and pried open the paint-tin lid, looking at the red-orange liquid within. He knew deep down that this was a stupid thing to be doing. Faking evidence required you to use something believable. Nobody had ever been arrested because a knife had been found with ketchup on it. Yet the victim clearly had orange blood. Short of breaking into every blood bank in the country and hoping someone else had a similar tint to their bodily fluid, Trent was out of luck. Plus he wanted very much to keep the number of crimes he was about to commit down to a minimum, if at all possible. Breaking into blood banks would have been a new low. He scooped out some of the paint with an empty coffee cup and placed the cup on the kitchen counter. Next, he picked up the newly purchased steak knife with a ten-inch blade that had apparently been sharpened with lasers or some such impulse by our mind-confusing rubbish and held up his left hand. Hopefully they won't figure out it's my blood. Trent thought as he ran the blade across the palm of his hand. The resulting cut in his skin was only too happy to pour out some blood. Trent made a fist and held it over the cup of paint so that the blood dripped into it. After ten seconds of this, he reached over and unrolled some medical bandages, which were promptly wrapped around his hand to stop the bleeding. With the knife, he stirred the contents of the cup so that it all mixed together, then left the blade in the liquid. This will never work, he said staring at the freshly made fake evidence. 
As Shelley exited the room, she noticed there seemed to be one less page floating around Ogma's head. She dismissed it. After all, who really knew how godly artefacts were meant to behave? And she looked over at Filthy Henry. The fairy detective was on the far side of Ogma's study. In his arms were the pages Ogma had created earlier, the small stack being firmly held against Filthy Henry's chest. At the sight of her, the fairy detective nodded. All done then. Time to go. Got to be nearly lunchtime. You know me. I gotta eat. Half reading all that. The shield against Dagda drained me fairly low, so it did. So chop chop, let's get on with it. Shelley looked at him confused. While it was true that the fairy detective was able to eat rings around most people, he generally only ever complained about being hungry after using magic. So far all they had done today was teleported into the realm of Dagda, and that had been using the magic coin the chief of the gods had given them. There had been that protective spell when Dagda punched him, but he had been eating just before that, so Shelley doubted his magical energies were dangerously low. Ogma looked up from his writing. How's he doing? he asked her. Well, he seems very upset, which would be understandable. Doesn't exactly strike me as a killer. The god of healing being a killer. That's a new one, Filthy Henry said, fidgeting from foot to foot. We can come back and have a chinwag later. After lunch, maybe. Oh, just hold your bloody horses, Shelley snapped. No, go and feed him, Ogma said. He's been acting funny for the last twenty minutes, and to be quite honest, it's putting me off my work. We can speak again later. Filthy Henry ran over to Shelley and nudged her in the side with his hip. Wonderful news. Be a dear and pull the coin out from my pocket, will you? He asked her, wiggling his trouser pocket at her. Just put it between my fingers and hold on. Why are you acting so bloody weird? Shelley asked, as she took the coin out and did exactly what Filthy Henry had said. No reason, he replied, as the effect of the teleportation spell kicked in. Just eager to get out of here for a bit is all. The room around them turned very white and everything moved. You can make yourself visible now, Ogma said to the empty room, as Filthy Henry and Shelley vanished from sight. At the top of the stairs, there was a slight shimmer in the air, and Dagda appeared. Huh, can't get anything past you, the chief of the gods said. He had his large black cauldron with him. Reaching inside, the god pulled out a ham sandwich and started munching on it. When one is tasked with paying attention to every little detail, it pays to pay attention to every little detail. Very funny, old friend, Dagda said. So it worked, then? Exactly as you said it would. He really does think he is the cleverest person in a room. You must get that from his father, Ogma said with a smirk. Dagda stopped chewing for a moment and gave Ogma a stern look. Indeed, the chief of the gods said. Well, let's just give him an hour or two and see what he manages to do. I will visit Henry myself in a bit, just to make sure he doesn't get himself into any more trouble. Ogma chuckled away to himself. Getting into trouble is something that runs in his family. Full of wit today, aren't we? Dagda said. Ogma sat upright in his seat and let his quill continue to write on its own. You know, if filthy Henry figures all this out, he will never forgive you. Dagda walked over to the window and looked out. Well... It isn't like we have the best of relationships to begin with, he said, staring out at the clouds moving by. Besides, he's good, but I doubt he's that good. They arrived in Filthy Henry's home, just outside the kitchen door. 
struggling to keep the pages against his chest. The fairy detective ran into the room and checked all the windows were closed. Shelley stared at him from the hallway. Hurry up, hurry up, he shouted at her. I need your help before this thing gets away. What is going on with you, she said, following him into the kitchen. And why do you have so many massive jars of salt? That can't be a good diet to have, even for you. Filthy Henry had avoided partnering with someone over the decades for this very reason. Partners never just did things without questioning why things had to be done. He had been approached by a number of fairies in his early thirties about teaming up. But deep down, he knew working solo was always going to be the best option for him. Mainly because he had a long list of things that annoyed him. Number one on this list was constantly having to explain himself. Which was why, to circumnavigate the subtle social problems that would arise from such situations, the very detective had opted just to rudely bark out his instructions until people did them, just to quieten him down. I will actually turn you into a frog if you don't stop asking me what's up. We don't have a lot of time and you're wasting it. Now check that those windows are closed tightly and then use that salt shaker over there to make a big salt ring on the kitchen table. Shelley sighed at him and threw her notepad onto the table. She checked the windows were locked, then took up the shaker and started to build up a ring of salt as instructed. Would you care to explain why I'm doing this? To avoid getting turned into a frog. I told you. Go around one more time. Make sure there isn't any spot of the table showing through the ring, he said, crushing the pages against his chest. There was a noticeable tug now, pulling him forward slightly. Shelley emptied the last of the salt onto the table, forming a perfect ring. He shouldered her out of the way and slammed the pages down onto the table in the centre of the ring. Fun, Filthy Henry said, his hand pressed firmly on top of the pages. Shelley caught herself on the table to avoid falling over. What is going on? The fairy detective picked up three of the pages from the table and stepped back, leaving one behind in the ring of salt. One single, solitary page without any writing on it at all. A page that was fluttering ever so slightly in the breeze, despite the fact that the windows were closed and the air was still in the kitchen. Well, I may have borrowed one of Agma's pages, Filthy Henry said with a grin. Filthy Henry, The Impossible Victim, is book two of the Filthy Henry series by Derek Power. This completely free audiobook version was narrated by Niall Milton. Other Filthy Henry books are available to buy on Amazon Kindle.